Yes, Tanardone, you can tell them. The following episode of ADHD Rewired contains adult language and may not be suitable for younger listeners. Parental discretion is advised. Thanks, buddy. I wanted to make this film because, truthfully, I just wanted to document what I'm struggling. But I've found a lot of other journalists who have spent a lot of time developing opinions and specific angles. And I feel like when they call people like Russell Barkley, they have these like preconceived notions of what to say to him. And when they make those phone calls, people like Russell, you know, either don't want to talk or don't really know what to do with you as a journalist. And I think when I called him, all I really had to say was, Russell, I'm struggling and I need help. ADHD Rewired, episode 150. This is the show designed for those of us with really good intentions, but a slightly wandering attention. My name is Eric Tivers. I'm a licensed clinical social worker, coach, and speaker. The website is ADHDrewired.com. We know that starting is the hardest part, so let's get started. But first, let me tell you about this. All three sections of our winter coaching and accountability groups are now full. To the 36 of you who registered for our winter coaching session, congratulations. Be sure to check your email and Facebook for messages from me and Nisha. Want to join us at this spring? Spring sessions are April 24th through June Jern. What's Jern? Through June 30th. Register now through January 31st and get $400 off registration. Only eight spots are available at this discounted rate. Registration and screening calls are Tuesdays and Thursdays now through the end of January. There are only seven days that you can register beginning January 10th. Go to coachingrewired.com. Dot com for details and to schedule your call. That's coachingrewired.com. It's January 10th, so if you're catching this early enough, join us today for a live Q&A. Go to erictivers.com slash events. It's at 12.30 p.m. Central Time. If you missed today's live Q&A, we do this on the second Tuesday of every month. Go to erictivers.com slash events to register. You know, 20-some years ago, women were rarely diagnosed with ADHD, and even today, women are still diagnosed much later in life. But this February, there is an event just for women with ADHD. It's the second annual ADHD Women's Palooza. There will be 35 ADHD experts, including Russell Barkley, Sari Solden, Thomas Brown, Alan Brown, John Rady, Lori Dupar, Rick Green, Myself and many others. Ned Hallowell will be giving the opening keynote. Oh, and this event is absolutely free. Go to erictivers.com slash palooza to register. You can also support both this amazing event and my podcast if you upgrade to one of their premium packages. So you can get the audio and video downloads of all 35 sessions, bonus gifts from all the speakers, and more. To show your support for this podcast and this amazing event, go to erictivers.com slash palooza. That's erictivers.com slash P-A-L-O-O-Z-A. 
Hey everybody, this is episode 150, and I'm not doing really anything special for this episode other than releasing another episode. I still haven't missed a week. I want to thank everybody who has supported this podcast, whether by being a guest, a listener, uh, those of you who have left a review. I couldn't do this without you guys, and it's been an amazing, amazing journey. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for being with me, whether you just found this podcast or you've been listening for a while. I couldn't have done this without the tremendous support from this amazing community. Speaking of communities, our private Facebook group, we have our our, our request queue is, um, I'm not going to actually tell you the number, but it's... um, it's at least three digits long. Um, we are trying to get through those requests. Make sure you are checking your other inbox, not just for myself, but also from Nisha Subramanian, who is our community manager. So check your inbox for messages. And if you get a message from Nisha, she's with ADHD Rewired. At the end of the month, we are going to be clearing the request queue if you haven't responded to us to start back at zero um, because we want to make sure that people are getting in and we want to get that that process streamlined so guys thank you again so much and if you've been listening for a while and you have not yet left a review celebrate with me by going over to itunes and leaving a rating and review for the podcast it really really does help and guys thank you so much oh by the way next week we might be having Russell Barkley on. Until then, let's get on with this interview. Welcome back to another episode of ADHD Rewired. Today's guest is James Castile. James is a young filmmaker based in Brooklyn, New York. He was diagnosed with ADHD at 13 years old and has struggled with the disorder throughout his entire life. After being fired from four network jobs in five years, he decided to look into how exactly this disorder was impairing him. What Goes Up, his documentary, is a feature documentary that examines the disorder through his personal lens as well as the lives and opinions of several people throughout the ADHD community. James, welcome to ADHD Rewired. I'm glad to be here. Um, Eric, uh, one, thank you. Um, this this was something that I never expected. I remember when I first got started doing this, um, I made the, the first person I called when I thought I was going to make a film was Russell Barkley. I thought, like, why not just call Russell Barkley? Because that's how this works. And he said, oh, you're going to talk to people about ADHD. And I thought in my head, yeah, it's original, right? <laughs> no one else has sat down and talked to people within the community. And he was like, you should uh, reach out to Eric Tivers. And then I went to your website and saw you have well over 140 hours of conversations. Um, and I uh, I have learned so much just from the show in general that to be on it um, is more than a pleasure. You know, I'm, I'm still nervous right now. Um, and I, I mean that in the best way. Uh, so you know, me too. So it's, uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> you know, but I, I think that in some ways that's, uh, I think, I think that is a positive thing because it's like, that means I'm still excited and I really still enjoy doing this. Um, and it's, it's like, if you're not a little bit nervous to do something, then maybe it's, it's not 
that important maybe i don't know right yeah i think i mean when you when you really care about something um it's for me at least when you care about something you want to make sure that you say it in the best way and if you don't then you'll kind of say whatever you want you know and i think uh the fact that i'm still like filtering here and trying to figure out where to go is interesting but it's funny because we've spent hours and hours and hours talking about it so so, uh, James and I, uh, we actually got to sit down at the uh, this year's and 2016's Chad conference. Um, you had it was you and um, who was the the guy that you were with? Uh, so my producer uh, Douglas Alvarez, uh, who also has ADHD. Uh, we met in uh, New York, um, and he's shot the majority of stuff that I've done for the film so far, and he came with me. Um, yeah, so. It was, it was a lot of fun. We sat down. You, I know you were talking to a lot of different people. And uh, I think it was like the second day you were there. I know I was one of the uh, of a, a number of people, I think, who came up to you and said, hey, hey, James, are you doing okay? You doing, you doing oh, man. Good? So, of course, <laughs> of course, in typical ADHD fashion, I, I'm, a, a, I'm a freelance video editor. And I promised several clients um, videos completely finished before I left for Chad. And of course, for me, what that means is don't know, don't send them a day before you leave for chat. It means pack in the morning and then export the videos three hours before your flight. So basically, I think I rather than like getting sleep, waking up, getting on my flight, I pulled an all nighter, got on my flight, flew from New York to California, landed. And then rather than sleeping, I think the second I landed, I ended up staying with other people at the conference. They were like, all right, let's go out. So by my first morning of the conference, I had just been awake. Like, I think I'd slept for maybe three hours. And of course, when you're going around with a camera and you're like, I don't know what I'm saying. How do you feel about ADHD? There's a point when people are like, hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. I think, I, th- I think your director, I was pulling it, sort of keeping you on, on track there a little bit. It was, it was uh, a, good, a good team there. You, it was funny because a lot of people were scared to say anything. I looked like a ghost and they were just like, maybe he's always like this. And you were like, I sense something is wrong in your aura. <laughs> <laughs> and after you said that, I was like, so right. I need to sleep. Uh, and of course, that actually ended up working. So I don't know if I actually yeah. said aura. I don't, I don't see that coming no, out yeah, of my maybe, mouth unless I was like sort of j- half joking. I, don't know. I think, yeah, I think my hipster brain reinterprets what people say to me and then it's like, Aura, you know, I think you just said you're tired. And I was like, oh, wow, my aura, you yeah, know, energy. Wow. Wow, it's totally my, up uh, chakras. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. My third eye was like, James, come on, get some sleep. <laughs> okay. So, um, you started this journey. You, um, began basically at, I would say at the top by reaching out to Russell Barkley. Oh <laughs> yeah. Now, let me or, ask you this. Do you think that if you know now, if you knew then what you know uh, now, you would have started by reaching out to Russell Barkley? No. Well, all right. So, so it's funny because if you say I started at the top, then I've been snowballing to where I am today. Uh, Working your way uh, down here to now on being a PhD rewind. But you know what? Right. (laughs) (laughs) I can't believe my manager made me show up to now. Like realistically, like I, I think I, I, I became really lucky because again, I'm a journalist to some degree. As a as a filmmaker, I have this disorder and I was diagnosed at a young age and I wanted to make this film because truthfully I just wanted to document what I'm struggling. Um but I've found a lot of other journalists who have spent a lot of time developing opinions and specific angles. And I feel like when they call people like Russell Barkley, they have these like preconceived notions of what to say to him and uh 
when they make those phone calls, people like Russell, you know, either don't want to talk or don't really know what to do with you as a journalist. And I think when I called him, all I really had to say was, Russell, I'm struggling and I need help. And given who he is and how he feels about the disorder, he helped and he directed me to you. He's directed me to like people like Laurie Dupar. Um, and what I found myself doing was honestly just kind of like tripping into the greatest resource I could. And it's funny because I, I, I have a little bit of like a bullet point list of the people that I talked to. And it was Russell Barkley, Laurie Dupar, and then you. And it, 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 there's so many people have come since then. But looking at how that all kind of came together, it's just kind of interesting. Like if had I not, but I also didn't have my hindsight, there's no way I would have started with Russell Barkley. But I right now I'm very happy I did because I've sat with him several times since then and have done interviews. and. Yeah. Anyway, so and I'm going to be having him on the uh, podcast again. Uh, very, very yeah. soon. Um, so he uh, he just came out recently with a a new book uh, for uh, um, uh, adults, people who who love adults with ADHD. So for the the spouse, the the parent for their adult child. Um, and I just uh, um, my interview with him is uh, on January 10th, and I just started reading it like two days ago it was like 320 pages i'm like oh god why did i wait so long to start this and why isn't it on audio but hopefully oh. to get through it all um so I'm, I'm i'm excited about that so i, I um, would have i would have done the same story but... <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm obs- i might be skipping a little bit um okay so uh you, you've spoken to russell barkley who, who else have you spoken to so laurie dupar um alan brown i know you said he's spoken so, to yeah so i've it's all right so on the phone and in person a lot of people through interview um not as many but still a lot um i think if we want to go over people in the community i think the the people i'm proud of realistically um russell barkley um, you, I've, I've spent a lot of time talking to Roberto Alabardia. Um, I, I'm very interested in comorbidities and he is a, a, like, not just a brilliant storyteller, but is someone who is he's so open to explaining anything to anyone, but only if he understands it. And there's something about that, that as a filmmaker, I appreciate so much. Um, the, I, I, the, the willingness uh, to say, I don't know. Like it, it's, a, it's crazy that that's like, should be a gem. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. So one of the issues that I like, as and I'm sure you've seen this when, when you're, when your uh, career choice uh, is sitting down with people and talking to them about stuff, you find a lot of people will talk to you about anything. And like, like if you just tell them, they're like, you know what, let's go there. And there are times when you'll end up with 45 minutes of nothing. And I've really found that like, that can be entertaining for personal reasons, but when you're trying to, uh, present it to the public, you're like, I, do I want people to see this? And what I love about, honestly, like also having you as a resource is like really knowing that you can have a filter. And like that episode you just did about knowing how to say no, that's essentially what we're getting at. And I think Alavardi is a good example. Um, one of the people I also wanted to mention was someone else who you've interviewed was Stephen Tanti. Mm-hmm. Um, he so you're, you're just name dropping now, basically. No, I'm just like, all right, so I've got this guy, this guy, and I'm great friends with all of them. No. <laughs> um, but realistically, I, um, I mean, I, I think to some degree I'm trying to avoid trying to be too much of a fanboy for Alavardia, you know, <laughs> like, all right, transition, transition, stop crying, James. Uh, but I wanted to mention Steven because of, of the people that I have found on your podcast he was very helpful because 
at some point I saw his TED talk and I think I had the same reaction that a lot of other people had mm-hmm. in that you get through the first eight minutes and you're like, great. Right. It's awesome. And then the, right. And then the medication part happens. And it's funny because when you see that TED talk as, as this isolated thing online, you think you're the first person to react the way you do. And um, I was lucky in that he's, he, he lived in New York and we had mutual friends on Facebook. So I, like rather than even emailing him, I just sent him a Facebook message and I was like, you are grabbing coffee with me like right now. We have things to talk about. Like, you know, very aggressive, like, mm. and when I met up with a New Yorker, you know, it's- <laughs> yeah, just like, listen, this is how I, you know, uh, and when we sat down, he made it very clear that like, there was let, a let me get some context real quick. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Um, so Stephen Tanti, who's been on the podcast before, um, and uh, is actually one of the the voices of one of the the coaching group promos as well um, uh, that you have either heard or, or have seen. Um, he did this really great uh, TED talk and talked about you know the sort of this idea of being sort of a multi potentialite of you know having all these different interests and strengths, and then at the uh, at some point in his uh, in his uh, talk, he sort of you know, gives a, you know, the, the thumbs down to medication and saying we're, you know, it's, we're over medicating. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, and I totally feel for him because it's one of these things where he wishes now he could retract that statement. Um, you know, he was in this sort of evolution of tr- sort of figuring out where he was at with it. Um, so it's certainly worth to go to, you know, go to, uh, to Ted to search. Uh, it was a TEDx. Um, we'll have a link to this uh, in the show notes, um, possibly in the comments below for those watching on, on uh, YouTube. Um, but it's, it's just been really interesting to see his, uh, and it really for all of us, I think all of our thinking evolves on this and I think it always will evolve on it. And that's, I think a really important sort of position to sort of be in and to acknowledge that like our, this is what we understand. This is sort of like the, the, to the best of our knowledge right now. And this, I think James, what you're, what you're describing is this is sort of what you're trying to document as well. Right. All right. So you right. sat down what you met, uh, Steven. Right. And that's also, you made several great points within that that I want to come back to. But I, to give some context. See how many points we actually come back to when we say we're going to come back to something. (laughs) Wish we had someone on the side just typing all of this. Like, and then James said again, like, this is now the ADHD rewired drinking game. Every time James. Um, all right. So I, 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 I started making this film about a year and a half ago. And again, like you heard in the bio, um, I have struggled with this disorder my entire life. And at a young age, um, I started to see that I was from a state where there was no therapy, there was no coaching, there was really just medication. So at 13, when I was handed medication, that was the end all be all. And uh, my parents uh, supported it all the way. I know not every parent is like that, but my parents were very like, this is what your doctor says, this is how it goes. And um, I scraped through school. Um, I finished with like a three, five. Um, why, and that's the thing is like a lot of, I think had I not been on medication, it probably would have been like a one, five. Um, with that said though, when I got to college, that all kind of fell apart. And I, it, it's funny because we talk about freshman crash and freshman crash is when all of the things that are supporting you in high school, your parents, all these structures disappear. Um, where my story gets complicated and something I still struggle to talk about today is that when I got to freshman year of college, I had already developed a bit of a dependence on medication. And what I did was when I knew that things were going to get hectic, I would double up on my medication. 
and it's right and it's it's a little dark it's probably it's little, not which i should probably just say for this one this is not a recommended yeah. approach this is again i, I do want to make clear this is not a recommendation by any means not even close to be honest this is the most unsafe thing you can do um but what i found was at that point was that if i kept doing that at the time i was going to survive college and the reality is that by my sophomore year it played out even worse, where not only did my structures really start to fall apart, but then I started to see how much my sort of dependence upon medication was really getting in the way. Um, so I dropped out. Um, I knew I wanted to be a filmmaker because I was editing a lot. Um, the hyper-focus thing was helping. Now, do, you, do you take medication now? I, and I do every day. Okay. Um, and the things I do want to mention, which so, again, so I want to clarify though, James. This, so it sounds like what, so what you were struggling with was this thought that oh, I have I have to be on this medication. So there was the that mm -hmm. the, the mental struggle of what does it mean that I need to be on this medication to to function? Right, and I think some something that has complicated the entire discussion, uh, both in the community and outside of the community, when it comes to people looking in is this idea of what the conversation about medication even is like, where does it get started? And I think as I've gotten older, what I've realized it's, it's not about getting mad at the medications or even just realizing it's a tool. It's when you're on the medication, um, you have to have a healthy approach to how you use it and you have to find the right amount and you have to weigh out all of the things that come into play with it. And obviously when I was younger, I thought it was, just take it until you can sit and focus. And if that means not sleeping, then so be it. And for me, for me, when I left Louisiana and I moved to New York after I dropped out, um, I found myself, <laughs> um, by the way, I moved to New York with $600 in my bank account and that was it. I thought, I don't know why I thought that was a good idea, but that's what I did. Um, impulsive, right? Sure. Um, I got started and I started to see I was living in the most complicated, stress-inducing city in the world. Um, but what's interesting about it is that I was like delivering food on a bike. Like I, I was like one of those guys that was like getting hit by cars and like, you know, just like whatever, I'll be fine. Um, but the thing is, the thing about ADHD that's so interesting to me is that people live in the red zone. Like if, if, if life is life or death, then you're going to be okay. Cause that's when you really get stuff done. And because of the way I was living my life, I became accustomed to that being the only way to live. Mm. Um, and when I came to New York, I like, I sort of like came through that. Um, and while I was doing that, I was editing on the side. Um, and through that, I started to see really what was happening with my medication. And I started to cut back and have conversations with people about how to, how to better approach it. Um, and to really get to the point after starting to go from being a creative in film, um, I started to be recommended to bigger and bigger studios. And I don't really want to name names, but I started to get jobs that um, honestly, as a 22-year-old, I was Sony, working. Sony, Pixar. I don't know. Yeah, I was like, oh god. I don't want to <laughs> like, name names, but I name names, but like Michael Bay films. Mm. Oh god, explosions. You know, like big. I know it really like more journalist stuff. But what was happening was I was starting to take bigger projects where I was receiving more and more tasks, and of course, rather than being a young creative, I was being told that I now had to organize five or six films at a time and what's amazing is for me in hindsight looking at how i went from being a young creative 
working on one thing at once where I could hyper-focus mm -hmm. to then having to avoid hyper-focusing. And when that happened, I went from doing really well at one thing to hitting like eighth grade again, where I couldn't even get started. Mm -hmm. And what I found is like over five years, I was fired four times for the same thing. And every time I got fired, I heard the same thing. It was your time management and your emotions are getting in the way. And it's funny because it was never after like a month. It was always after six months or after a year. Mm. And what after after my last film, this will I promise this will come back to Stephen Tanti. I've got it like right here. Basically, when I was fired from my last job, um, also I'm not realizing mid mid conversation that I'm that guy that's like I got fired. Um, <laughs> um, as 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 I got fired, my director was like. Let me be clear in saying that we love you. You work hard. You show up early. You leave late. You are passionate about this. Um, but all you talk about is ADHD. That's all you talk about. This film is not about ADHD. This film is about Ebola. Um, you need to go make the film you want to make. Mm. Um, and it's for me, that was, that was like a light bulb moment. Um, because one, it was the first time I'd actually listened to my director. It was when I got fired is when I was like, you're right. You're right. <laughs> it says a lot about how I work. Um, but I sat down and realized I've been fired for these two things over and over again. I know I have ADHD, but what isn't working here? And it wasn't until I sat down and my, uh, someone showed me Russell Barkley's executive functioning theories that I actually understood that ADHD is time management to some degree. Mm -hmm. And once I got through that, I started to realize just because I knew I had the disorder didn't mean I was actually treating it correctly. And the reason why I want to bring up Stephen Tanti is that when you're younger, I think a lot of people, especially when you're in our generation, um, you really start to develop this idea that medication is getting in the way. You think that CBT and coaching and all these other forms are out there and medication is like this big wall in front of us. And I think when I saw Stephen's um, TED talk, I had just come through my own personal growth where I had seen that wasn't really the case and that medication was just another thing. But of course, um, when I sat down with him, you know, he's been doing this a little bit longer than I have. So when I said, I feel this way, he was like, cool story. So does the rest of the community. <laughs> um, and, and from there, I really started to see just how nuanced and complicated all these conversations become. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm going to try to avoid using the term nuance too many times today. That's kind of my like comfort zone. <laughs> um, but I think what I want to really, really focus on is... So speaking uh, of focusing and distracting, I just so I so who's yeah. who's there taking a picture of you? Because I just saw a camera. Right oh, on the, oh yeah. <laughs> by the way, I thought it was going to be subtle. We just got caught. So, <laughs> so again, I am a filmmaker, um, and uh, so every moment uh, of your life is being documented. I, when I sleep at night, I pay some guy. <laughs> I found him on Craigslist. It was like just an oh god. <laughs> Wasn't that actually like the first form of like video streaming that there was somebody like figure out a way to like automate a a, a picture. That would like upload every like five minutes. Um, yeah. and I forget the full story. I think I heard about that NPR, but um, yeah. Speaking of cows yeah. and horses, yeah. <laughs> a squirrel, right? Um, yeah. So, yeah. Um, I totally I... just derailed you. No, you're good. Can you do like, can, like can my can brain you right now. Three is point like... shot and get back to, to what we were just saying. You just pulled like a Christopher Nolan where we're like sitting in a van and then it turns and everyone's like falling in slow mo <laughs> sideways. Um, but no, like I think 
All right. What what there was a point you made about all of this with Stephen that I want to get into, and it's that what I'm trying to do with a documentary is not just focus on someone saying one thing at once. It's recognizing that awareness comes from growth. It's that every person who sits down and starts working on this, regardless of what their background is, you have to look at their context. You have to look at, honestly, what their worldview is before you can really start to discuss the bullet points of what we know about them. Mm -hmm. And this is why I wanted to sit with Russell Barkley. This is why I wanted to sit with uh, people like Thomas Brown and Ned Hallowell, is that they all have different backgrounds that brought them to where they are today. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, something about the ADHD community that's so interesting is that um, when you sit with a lot of different people within the community, you start to see these structures that are sort of like the uh, the basis, the, like the dichotomy of all the conversations that we have about it, whether it be a good or like a negative or positive. Um, and I, I think the more I work on this, the more I see there's nothing wrong with people having their own opinions. And um, I'm trying to work through that to some degree. Yeah. So what so, about the those people's opinions who uh, it's are, really, I think, in, in some ways are harmful towards pu public health. You know, right. people like, uh, what's his name, Schwartz, who wrote that, right. uh, never wrote right. that book, ADHD, oh, yeah. yeah, the ADHD yeah. Nation, whatever. It's like, and it's just absurd. I mean, it's the, the stuff that he writes in this, it's just, it's, I, mean, I don't have anything to say about it, because it's, it's, yeah. what was, what, so, um, have you by any chance tried to talk to him? So, so here's the thing I have, and I think this is where I get caught in the muck a little bit. Okay. Um, and the thing is, at some point I had people don't talk about it, but I, I want to talk about it. Um, and I feel like if I didn't, I would really be getting in my way and everyone else's way. Um, I have always been curious why someone who is a professional journalist goes out of their way to write the things that he did. That's a great question. And I, and I often um, wonder that as well. And I, I, because at the root of it, there was a point where my 18 year old self wanted to hear what he had to say about this, right? There's a point where when you've learned just a little bit, and again, when you're a young Stephen Tonti and you're mad at medication, when someone who is a best, you know, a New York Times bestseller is saying, everything is fucked. You're like, yeah, everything is fucked. Pardon my French. I this is, yeah. Um, <laughs> but what, what I've started to see is that sitting down with those people and trying to talk to them about where they like how they got there is interesting to me and i think um where things get complicated is when you normalize opinions like that and when when you work within this community when it becomes okay to um give light to people like that um because truthfully i've read his book i've read his articles um and i think where it gets tricky is the, the kind of journalist that he is, is he is a goal-oriented journalist. Um, but what we know is, I mean, the what, thing... What does that mean? So at, you're a journalist, right, so talk, so, talk to us a little so, bit about that. Right. So again, like as a journalist, I kind of have to like really dig into this stuff every day. Um, when you're trying to look into a topic, um, there, is, there, there are separate phases. There is research, there is writing, and then there is editing. And within each step, you have sort of different powers that be... Um, that are monitoring what you're doing. Um, so for someone like Alan, 
he was working at the New York Times. So when he was researching, he was looking at everything. And then when he was writing, he was in this middle ground where he was thinking about maybe what his editors wanted, but he was also writing when he wanted to write. And then by the time he got to the edits, everything consolidates. Um, and what most people don't see is that when he was writing his articles, he was speaking on the behalf of the organization that is the New York Times. Um, and while I don't think you could sit down and talk to him and get him to say that what he wrote wasn't his opinion, you start to see there are always conflicts of interest. Mm-hmm. Um, but with that said, he's written this book, and I feel like it's, it's, it's a lot of what he's already said. Um, and what I really think it comes down to is the fact that he is, to some degree, um, piecing together uh, different, different points about different people that to a lot of people in the community seem like they've been cherry picked to fit a very specific agenda. And it sounds like you're being very diplomatic as you're explaining this right now. This is because you have to be. Um, I mean, you know, uh, I think what we saw in his book is that he found a few bullet points about every person he wrote about, and then he sort of used it to sort of make a point in the book. But the thing is, um, valid research method. What was that? That's not a valid research method. You know, it's like not not really. No, it's, it's like not. saying I, you, you, have not. A, you have a a study of a hundred people and two people had uh, uh, this maybe a, a, some kind of uh, a potential uh, side effect of something, um, and then you do another study and you find those side effects, and you basically group it saying like all people have these side effects. It's like right. no, it's. I mean, is that sort right. of just that that you got from it? Like he's he's he used. Um, data that was you know bits and pieces but what completely just cut out this, the other part which changes the entire story right yeah so and I, that's yeah yeah um yeah and i that's it, the crazy thing is being a journalist that's like something you take on and i think for him when he dove into this topic i don't quite I don't think he realized how many people he was going to hurt by having to take that approach. Because what I will say about Alan is I don't think he's a bad guy, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to recommend the book that he wrote to people that have never read about ADHD. Because when you do take on that approach, you are consolidating so much information that even if in your brain you understand the concepts that you've written about, you're going to imply a lot of stuff that doesn't always work out um, or like, like we've seen, like can mean someone can suddenly become anti-medication or to a large degree. I mean, there are people who have read his, his book and have felt like a lot of people don't even have the disorder or, or like, I, you know, I hear, I still on a regular basis feel like I'm defending that the disorder even exists. Right. Which is kind you of know, crazy. And, which is crazy. You know, it, like for me, I feel like that shouldn't even be a conversation anymore. And I think one of the, one of the, things I appreciate about Russell is that he's still willing to talk about that because he came from a generation that did have to defend it every day. Mm-hmm. One of the things he wanted to talk about is how he had been on TV shows where at some point it was like American Idol where they would pick their uh, singer, but it was more like, all right, all right, everybody type in a, if you think this disorder exists and B, if you don't, and then it would be like, you know, like 60, 40 and Russell's like, what? Like, so, um, I, I, I can yeah, visualize we, his head just exploding from that. <laughs> right. You know, it's like when your entire life becomes researching something and then people in the audience are like, no, it doesn't exist. Whatever. 
like I so I I think you know I'm I'm glad we dove into this because going into this I was a little worried about how to approach this, um, but I the way that I really feel about this honestly is that I think Alan tried, but the problem is that I don't think he is an advocate, and this is something he says. He says I am not an advocate for mental health. I wrote this book as a journalist, and by doing that, I think he's really given himself a tight 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 threshold. And I think he's brought on his own, he's brought on the criticism. Um, and when people like Russell Barkley go out of their way to say, I read it, I don't even know what to say about it. Russell is entitled to that because Russell's life is learning this disorder. And when people underneath him take shots like that, it just, it makes sense. But by no means will I say no one ever read the book if they don't want to, because that's not how I think this works, I guess. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the, um, the, the question, I guess, of, um, my brain was just going in about 18 yeah. different directions all at the same time. Right. Um, yeah. so the, the question of, um, you know, there's so many people out there in the ADHD community. I mean, this, you know, it's almost hard to say that the ADHD community is this one thing. Right, um, because you have the the people who are very sort of science based, as like uh, you know, Barclay, the people who are sort of a combination of sort of science based and really looking at the um, the the qualitative sort of experiences, like Thomas Brown. Um, right. You have uh, people who are really focusing on uh, you know, the the, the strength based perspective, like, like Ned Hallowell, um, and you know, and I think there's validity to to all of it, right? And I think that there's um, there's a, a, you know, what, what is truth when we're looking at science, right? I mean, right. is it, is it only that, that thing that could be measured, um, is valid? Um, you know, the, a, a, um, a true scientist would say yes. Right. Yeah. But I also think that sometimes, I mean, cause my, my background too is in a lot of kind of behaviorism and which is very sort of, uh, driven, uh, data driven. Um, you know, but you know, over the last couple of years too, my my uh, um, just intrigue uh, with Brene Brown's work, who's all it's all qualitative uh, research. So she does um, a, a a qualitative research approach called, um, and I'm going to blank on the name, uh, grounded research theory, where it's basically like it takes qualitative research, but it if there's any outlier in the data, then it eliminates that as a trend. So it re it's it's looking at a threshold that's extremely high to be able to, to use qualitative data. And wow. even um, uh, the, um, um, I love when words just, you know, it's like, come on, come on. I know you're in there. Come on. Um, the, uh, the, the organization that did the, uh, the longitudinal study on ADHD, um, the, um, oh man. It's like the study that is talked about in ADHD. What? Know? Wait, the what study? It's like the study. It, it's um. It wasn't the CDC or like the MTA yeah, or so the, the the MTA. Like, MTA. Yes. Yeah, so I know that part of part of that now they're now actually looking for funding. Uh, they may have actually received it and are now doing investigative qualitative research, which I think Ooh. is really interesting. You know, because I think there's so much that that. Uh, we need to hear from the stories. And I think that's where, um, you know, we have to be able to hear personal experience and like, 
is that measurable? It is measurable. It's a, it's harder to measure. I mean, it's it's way more complex, though, right? Um, but I think it's it's uh, I, I think we're becoming to more of a nuanced understanding of the importance of there. I use the word nuance of uh, <laughs> everybody take a shot. <laughs> um, a more nuanced understanding of um, of story. I mean, this is I think the you know, I hear from from I'm true. I've received hundreds of emails from people, possibly more than that. Of people just, you know, thanking me for for being able to hear their own story, but yet it was somebody else telling it, right? There's power in that. I mean, there's true, true power in that. Um, I think we also have to look at what the, the research says about how does our brain interpret story versus dry analytical data, right? And right. we know that our brain will bias itself towards story over data. That's our, our brain is designed to do that because we are a social being, right? As a, as a, as a creature, as a species, right? So it's like, if um, you can read all the data in the world about something and then your neighbor can have an experience that sort of is, is, is uh, counter to what the data says. And now you're really wrestling with this, this fact. I mean, my case in point. So um, you know, my, the other half of my practice is, is autism. Right. And, you know, when I hear about like all these, you know, the, 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 vaccine stuff it's just like come on this is crazy right and it's right. like looking at the public health you know there's a greater uh public health uh, crisis that's now emerging because people are thinking that that vaccines cause autism blah 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 and then yeah. when it became time to to vaccinate my son i was like Wait, let me relook at all the research let me let me make sure that you know and so like i look at that experience like wow like that you. yeah and so it's like understanding that that uh, our, our brain is going to put more weight on a personal story than data. We have to sort of look at then comparing data and personal story with that understanding with that. Right. Right. And so within that, I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad that that's like one of the things I think we do share in common is the fact that we do sit and listen to stories. And I think there was a point where we were like dropping names of people within the community, but realistically uh, for me, the, what I love about this is talking to so many people, especially in New York. I mean, I have taken a camera to Central Park and five out of the 15 people I interviewed had been diagnosed or medicated and all have stories, you know, and that alone is interesting. But what I found is, um, in, in that way, you start to see that um, it's personal experience that sort of like opens the gates um, to not even just uh, like affecting people, but convincing people that things are realities. Um, and one of the things I want to focus something you said, uh, the, the vaccine thing is so interesting to me because uh, I worked on a film that had to do with the Ebola crisis um, in Liberia in 2014. Mm -hmm. And the issues that a lot of people um, that were working um, in Liberia at the time were finding is that one, um, there were a lot of Africans that didn't even believe in Ebola. Like they didn't think it was a real thing. Mm -hmm. And they, like there would be points where family members were getting sick and they were like, this is made up by an establishment that is out to get us. And it wasn't until people were sitting inside of um, hospitals and were watching people pass away that they were like, Okay, maybe this is real. And one of the one of the things that um, was really making a difference in terms of like the public awareness of this viral disease was watching those people that survived it and then went back and told people about it. 
And within that, one of the things that we saw was that there, I don't want to say they're necessarily vaccines for Ebola. I need to look into that. But we've seen other, we've seen other diseases that have been the same way, like smallpox is a prime example. Um, and one of the people who was um, working on Ebola was this guy named Larry Brilliant, who has worked for a series of what a like great this. Name. <laughs> like his name is Larry Brilliant, right? And it's funny because he like dresses like Steve Jobs and is like like he's written like eighteen books about like like uh, like health across the globe. Like it just all comes together. Um, but he helped cure smallpox, I believe, in the sixties and seventies. And he has these really really scary stories where he talked about just how bad it was to the point where him and he was, he was probably my age at the time, him and a few other doctors were going into villages and were forcibly vaccinating people like in the most morally corrupt ways. And the thing is, I don't even really know if I am ready to like, like give in a, a personal opinion, but what he talks about is after that happened, there were points where the people that were vaccinated were starting to see they were the only people surviving. And, after after that happened, those people were the believers and went on to educate older generations about the fact that these smallpox vaccines weren't that bad. Hmm. And what I, what I want to come back to, and again, there are so many morally corrupt things within that story, and you start to see how tricky this is. When we look at right. the it's way that... that, that moral uh, uh, ethical debate of do the ends justify the means? And Right, right. And like at what point, like also like what is life and death with ADHD? Again, like what is the true impairment? And again, we start to see there's so many different directions to go here, but you start to see that this is all kind of connected and that these fears are pretty uh, normal. Um, And one of the things in the film that I want to focus on is not necessarily normalizing the fears of medications, but trying to um, have open arms and an open mind uh, with the people that feel this way. And I, I feel like some degree I'm walking into hot water when I say that because of what we've heard and what we've seen, especially when we look at people who've been working with the disorder since the like mid seventies. Um, but truthfully, I feel like if this dis- like if people within the community are going to continue to explain this to people on the outside, there has to be somewhat of an easier approach to conversation. Well, it and sounds I think, like what- I think go ahead. I think it's the anecdotes that get us there. I don't think the numbers, like even if the numbers are closer to truth, I don't know if the numbers are ever really going to um, explain to people how to like uh, fix a problem, I guess. You know, that's, that's an interesting point because I think part of, you know, when I think about what I do on the podcast, um, you know, because it's from an editorial, I guess, standpoint, like I view my role as a as a person who creates a podcast that's, you know, um, I mean, thousands of people listen to it every single week. You know, it's that um, the stories that I share, I want to be represented uh, by by what the science says, right? So, you know, it's so when I think about the the stories that people do share on on the podcast, these are the stories that that you can look in the data and the data represents, right? Because I know that that's like stories move people, right? And data is, you know, unless you're a nerd like me a little bit like data can be really boring right unless you're like super interested in it and like you're like oh the differentials between this like that's awesome like that's so cool and and most people like wait i have to do a google on what is that actually differential uh you know so it's um so i think that the power of stories is super important but what it sounds like what you're really trying to do is is 
bring out a sense of of empathy and um you know something that is you know not you know really well seen in today's public discourse and that's this thing called listening exactly and so it sounds like you're trying to understand and help other people understand those people who have these fears about medication where does that come from without them make, trying to make them seem like they're crazy or stupid or not informed right but where does it actually come from in a way that's empathic right to help them sort of bridge that that connection because i think it, you have to acknowledge i think an opposing point of view in order to offer another perspective right to, to see where someone's coming from because it's like if if you're trying to convince someone of something and they won't hear your point of view at all like how open-minded are you going to be to you know listening to that other uh, person's perspective Right. Is, I, that, I, again, is that what yeah. you're trying to get at with this documentary? That's this definitely, anyways. That, that's that's one of the major the, the the thing that made that has made this documentary um, so much to handle is that when I got started, it was really me just documenting my process towards finding treatment that worked for me. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, the conversations that we're having now have come from looking at a little bit of the bigger picture. So I don't want to say this is what I wanted when I got started by any means, but right now when I look at the way things are going, that's what it feels like. And um, I think, yes, like to some degree, it's the empathy. And for me, the first step is something, I mean, a lot of people in the community are always talking about how much they love Brene Brown. And there's a reason. It's that someone normalized vulnerability. And I, my entire life have become accustomed and maybe it's because of my impairments or uh, like just my sense of humor, but recognizing when I'm wrong or if I've done something wrong is not always a bad thing. There's nothing wrong with revealing that. And I think what's made the political climate even scarier um, and so just, ah, it's just like, it's hard to look at Facebook. Be careful here, James. It's, uh... Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, um... Before we hit record, you, uh, you shared with me that you were talking to Stephen Tanti and you asked him for, for advice for the show and he told you to just stay out of the weeds. Yeah, and we're, we're, we're I'm diving straight I in. Think Let's I think we're narrowing. Yeah. As soon as we go, we yeah. start with, with yeah. the, the political comments. Yeah. I mean, no, that's a whole I, other show right yeah. there. Right, and I will avoid, uh, the last thing I will say um, is not really much more um, about politics itself other than people on Facebook and somewhat of their echo chambers and only really listening to the voices they want to hear. And there's a, there's a comfort level to that that I think a lot of people have started to become accustomed to. A lot of people deleting th- their Facebook friends because someone is annoying them because of that opinion. And have you ever I th- done that, James? Have I ever done that? Yes. Um, first, yes, I have. And I I have too. And the thing is, there was a point for a long time where I like was doing that probably once a week. And then I got to a point where I, when you live in Brooklyn and you live in the bubble, you start to see how much of a bubble it really was Mm -hmm. and is. And uh, again, being in Louisiana now, I've sort of seen like, wow. It's it's a whole other part of the right. country right right so again I, I will avoid the weeds and uh there's so many other things we need to get into but i do think people need to really work on that vulnerability thing and part of that is accepting that sometimes you might be wrong and just because someone else might be wrong doesn't mean that it's the end of the world or we can't talk to them it's yeah so anyway okay so All what right. I, what I want to do uh, right now is we're going to take a a quick break. Um, we'll uh, we're going to wrap up the discussion about the the documentary, 
Uh, and then, um, James, I'm going to ask you to come and sit in the hot seat with me. Okay, let's do it. All right. We will be right back. Hey, have you been over to YouTube yet to check out the How To ADHD channel? No? Why not? Go check it out. They've released over 50 videos, and I'm a featured guest in one, soon to be two of these videos. Last week, they did a live feed to celebrate getting 50,000 subscribers, and on this live feed, Jessica made an announcement. She's getting married to her producer. Jessica, Edward, congratulations. I'm so happy for you guys. Guys, go check out How To ADHD on YouTube. Guys, this is not a paid advertisement. I just love what they're doing, and uh, I'm, I just want to support what they're doing over there. Go check them out. Go subscribe. I really think that you'll enjoy what you see over there. Congratulations, guys. Turn good intention into amazing actions with the ADHD Rewired Coaching and Accountability Group. This virtual video-based group coaching program meets three times a week. Improve your productivity, develop better habits, experience the true power of supportive accountability from members of our own tribe. Learn, grow, and connect. Learn more at ADHDrewired.com. I hope to see you there. That's ADHDrewired.com. And prepare to get your ADHD rewired. All right, we are back from the break. And uh, so right uh, during the break, James and I were actually uh, having a, a, a quick discussion and we're going to do a little uh, uh, audible on a uh, plan B. Instead of doing a hot seat, um, James has some areas of his documentary that he still sort of questions on. And uh, so I said, you know what? Why don't we sort of tackle that instead? Um, and he was game for it. And I'm game for that because, you know, if something is new, novel, and different. That makes my brain happy. So James, let's, let's do this. Um, so as far as the um, sort of leading up, uh, picking up where we left off, the what is sort of your end goal um, of, of the documentary? Like, it, and do you have that yet? Like, do you have, like, what, what so, it is it that you want a viewer to take away from it? So that for me is, that is the most complicated question. Um, and it's funny because most people think that should be the first question. Um, and what I've come down to is having an end goal um, to some degree, depending on what it is, I guess, can really get in the way. Um, but truthfully, um, if, if I had one, it would be me figuring out the best way to treat my ADHD. Um, and not just treat, but to sort of start to take positive steps towards um, just not even really making it easier, but starting to see what I need to do that will help me. Um, and for, from personal experience, what I can do to not get fired. <laughs> um, but I know that's like, that's very one-sided. So how aside not from to that, get fired. That is my goal. <laughs> how to not get fired by James Castile. Um, no, I, I, it's a mix of that and having a film to show that helps other people um, and helps people in ways that I, I feel like there are a lot of bullet points that we hear about what to do if you have the disorder. And I think my goal is to sort of um, have something that's a little bit more open-ended. Um, and my, I think for some people, like type A people might even be a little suffocating because there's so much to look at. Um, but it, I think, I think um, by the end of it, I just hope I have a film that people can look at, relate to. And if there's a lesson or two they take from it, then great. Is it going to be nine hours long? 
Um, it's going to be a 14 part series on HBO and every episode is going to be six hours. And Ver <laughs> Werner Herzog is going to narrate it. <laughs> it's awesome. Okay. Yeah. So um, let's just uh, pick up. So what questions are you still searching for? Are you still wanting to, to get clarity on um, yeah. the documentary? So the the biggest um, the biggest question I have, and this is something um, that stems outside of the film, it has to do with how people with ADHD communicate or reveal this to people outside of the community, and it has to do with how we reveal it to friends, how we reveal it to uh, bosses, um, essentially everyone outside of our communities and families like that, um, and. I reached a point where I was younger, where I felt the need to tell everyone. And I decided, I mean, I'm making a film or I'm documenting my entire process where my parents are like, why are you doing this? I'm like, it'll help. Don't worry. It's fine. Uh, but where, what I'm coming to is looking at, I have started to make a film where I, my stories are the beginning. They're the root. It's, it's me starting to see that there's something wrong and going through the struggles I have and starting to talk to other people within the disorder um, is where I'm going, but where I'm starting to get a little lost um, or something I'm still trying to figure out how to really craft as a storyteller is when do I leave myself out? Like when, when does this not become my story and when does this just become uh, like, when do I hand the torch and do I take it back or once I hand it over, do I leave it? And for me, that is, um, one of the biggest questions as a as a journalist, but also as a human being, anyone can ask. Um, and I think you've, I'm sure you've talked about this in other facets. Uh, so I'm curious when it comes to storytelling, what the lines are and when it becomes different or if it is different. So let me answer this a couple of ways. Um, I'm just writing a note real quickly. Because, um, uh, you know, the whole working memory thing where you can hold on to multiple ideas at the same time. Um, <laughs> if you think you can do that, um, you might want to start writing things down. So when I'm thinking about what do I personally share, both on the podcast, um, as a, as a coach, as a therapist, um, I personally will share things that I have processed and I have dealt with, right? One of the, the one lens that I will put things through is I should have imagined someone maybe from my childhood who wasn't so kind, um, I said, would I be okay with them knowing this information, right? Would I be okay with, with someone who could, you know, uh, try to use that information against me? So that's sort of the filter, the lens I put uh, on when I'm thinking about what do I share and what don't I share? Because, um, I mean, there's, I share a lot of things on the podcast, um, but I don't share everything, right? right. Um, you know, there's been, uh, there's been episodes that I haven't released uh, before, because I realized I sort of overshared and it turned into more of like a personal therapy session, which was great for me, but no one's ever going to hear that conversation. Right. Um, because I, like, I think that's really important. Like, can you, uh, like, what's the reason you're sharing something? Um, exactly. so I think that's a, like, is it because it's cathartic? Like, I mean, it could be cathartic and you've dealt with it, but it could also be cathartic and you're still processing it. Right. And I think if you're right. still processing it, um, then I would probably have some caution about sharing that. Right. So as a journalist, where it gets tricky, and I'm glad I'm glad that we we took this approach uh, again. Uh, and one of the things I want to bring up um, again is the conversation I had with Russell Barkley, because he's really been a, like 
a guiding light to some degree in terms of like where I'm going, who I'm talking to. Um, um, I've found he has, uh, he has opinions about most of this and he's paying attention to all of this all the time. And um, one of the things that he said to me was very specifically that I will not participate in goal oriented journalism. And goal-oriented journalism is a journalist who sits down and crafts a narrative mm -hmm. with an agenda. And what, what storytelling is when it comes to what you're saying is, as a human, you have to evaluate the stories that you tell people um, to some degree, um, almost, almost uh, out of a sense of survivalism. Um, and it's, it's obviously different because um, sometimes, like when you say you're evaluating, like, what does this person need to hear? What do they not need to hear? Like, you're not going to necessarily get a better job or worse job. But I guess what I am saying is um, there are similarities in that. And I think that's where it gets complicated is, again, if we appreciate vulnerability as a storyteller, when do you have to almost let go of those paranoias of, is this going to hurt me? Um, because there, there are a number of things that I have like had people pull up cameras and shoot that like, you know, for me, this has been the opposite of reality TV and that it's not like I wake up and I'm like, I'm going to struggle with this today. It's like they turn on the camera and then I get a phone call and someone's like, yeah, you need to figure this out. And I'm like, ah, um, and a lot of that is stuff that I've been told, like, I probably shouldn't tell people. And I guess what I'm starting to see is like, when do what is my threshold as a as a storyteller? And again, I mean, you've already kind of answered that. It's really, I guess, it's about what you want. Um, but yeah, for me, it's it's so complicated. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so a, um, a couple other things that I'm sort of thinking about. So, like when I put together those um, uh, those um, I don't know what you want to call them scissor wheels or promotions, where I have the the sort of that narrative clip of members from my coaching groups, and I sort of put them together to sort of create the story. You know, most of those are you know I'm not involved in that story, but it is a story that I'm creating by th through editing, right? Um, right. Like it, it it it's um, I mean I'm, I'm not altering anything to so it's not it's not like i'm i'm putting things together to create a, a story that wasn't there but only is only there now because of the editing like that to me would be unethical and just i couldn't like live with myself doing that right um right. but it does but it, it creates a, a by putting those things together it does create the narrative that you're wanting to share so i almost wonder if the idea of goal-oriented journalism you know i think in a lot of ways it's it, that's certainly a a good pursuit but I think if we understand human bias, it's actually an impossible task, right? Um, you know, this is why in in um, in social science research um, and in, in medical research, you're looking at randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled studies, which basically means so you have the the research that the primary investigator of the research, right? Mm -hmm. Then they hire people who are going to actually carry out the research, and then those people. Um, are the people who are taking data and those people who are taking the data don't know who is getting the real treatment and who is getting um, uh, the, the sham treatment. So it's the, the placebo control, right? Um, right? So there's like these multiple layers that are put in place for the reason that even with the best of intentions, even with the person who has the most, uh, you know, that has the greatest sort of ethical moral guide as, the, as their compass, right? Like there is still bias because that's we, we we're human beings and you know and, and 
even when we try to not do it, even when you look at academic writing, when you write in sort of the third person and all that kind of stuff, right? It's like you're still like you can't. It, it, there's a a voice that you try to remove that's your own, but it's still your own. Like and and Always. so I don't know. Is there a version of like um, uh, randomized kind of double blind uh, approach to journalism? Like I don't know. Is there? How would you I think, do that? I think the thing we were talking about earlier where you just put up a camera and you're like, all right, let's do this. And then you don't tell anyone else that you're shooting. But that's like, yeah. Uh, long story short, no, I don't think it exists. I don't think it exists. And I think really what it comes down to, at least for me, is knowing the line between just editing for time purposes right. and then actually crafting a bias. Um, one of the things I've dealt with is like, obviously when I'm making the film, there are points where I meet people, um, where over a, a period of time I meet them at certain points. And then in the documentary, to some degree, I have to place them in an order that just kind of makes sense narratively. And at some point I remember being, um, I was, I was like really confused because who was it? I think it was, I think it was when I found out who Daniel Amen was of all people. And you know, we will, we'll spare that conversation. But there was a point where I was trying to figure out, based on when I talked to him in relation to when I had spoken with Russell Barkley, and then when I had talked to someone like Lord Dupar, I knew that I had talked to him at this point, but in the narrative, do I put him there and why? And you start to see that, I think, when you're trying to tell this story in a very specific way, those lines start to get very, very, very sticky. But at the same time, what what becomes... Um, really, really honest or really blatant is that I think people are good at sniffing out bias. Uh, maybe not at first, but once you start to educate yourself on a topic, it starts to become clear when something is fairly honest and when something is uh, filled with agenda to some degree, not always. Do, I guess. do, do you think that um, you would be able to maybe share this part of the story in a sense, like in the documentary, like talk to the, the the camera the the viewer and w- about this struggle and so in, in explaining what you're trying to present like let that be part of the story I mean do you think that that's a huge part of it to be honest I think it, for me the film and this is something that I'm I'm excited to show people but also terrified of showing people is I I am really including myself in the story not to be this voice of reason. But in uh, this, again, the entire conversation has to do with when am I this guiding light or, or like, when am I this guiding light and when am I just this guy with ADHD that you're watching struggle? And what has started to happen is how do I even reveal what are the struggles? Because some people have said, oh, we'll just show those like cookie cutter examples where you lose your keys and, you know, when you get to the subway and it's like, that's so the last thing. I mean, really. That's, right. that's, and that's what, what I've found... <laughs> Right. And what I found is a lot of the struggles that I'm dealing with in the film are the process of making this film. Um, I, think, and, I think you should show that. And, right? So I th- that's it, right. it might almost be, um, and here's sort of my ideas like exploding right now. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> so you're this, you're sort of the narrator of the film, right? Yeah. But yeah, then yeah. if you could have like the, I don't know, the camera be its own narrator. You know what yeah. I mean? Where it's like, it's also showing and, and maybe showing without words, even potentially. So, so that's where it, actually you're, you're, you're 
Pretty much. What, what I've done is I've started to see that if I'm going to tell this story, mm-hmm. I can't be the only person on the crew. And the reason why I mentioned Doug earlier was because Doug was a guy that I found who also had the disorder who in a lot of ways completely disagrees with me on several topics. Mm. It's funny because we get into arguments like every single, I mean, you saw like there were points when we were interviewing you where he'd ask you a question. I'd be like, why are you asking that? Doug? Like, come on, you know? And like, that's how we work. And what I found is when there are points when I am in the midst of um, doing like a segment, he's the one shooting me. So what you'll see is there are points where I'm trying to guide the narrative but then there, you're going to see there are sections where the narrative is actually slipping away from my control. And I've found that by having people who I trust, even if I disagree with them, um, on like in, in my surroundings, like you said, having a team like workshop with you, I'm starting to see that rather than even working shop, workshopping with them in the background, I'm workshopping with them in the moment. Uh, one of the things I didn't mention that I wanted to kind of get into is that my grandmother, who um, was diagnosed with uh, borderline personality disorder in the 70s, which by the time she was in her 90s, I think someone said it was actually ADHD, which is super interesting to me. She was a jazz musician and she was very improvisational. And she was one of those cookie cutter examples of someone who could only do something in the moment with other people. Like she was a very good when it came to not necessarily collaborating, but if there was if there was an idea going around the room, she could definitely give her input. And I saw that her favorite thing in the world to do was like sit with a bunch of people in a room um, and then give them instruments and then just kind of like jam. Um, and it's funny because my mom, <laughs> yeah, it, it, and it's funny because my mom, uh, like being the daughter of like a hippie, uh, ended up becoming a type A business person who ended up being the exact opposite. Um, and then she of rebelled. course, she, she rebelled as like a Michael J. Fox, like I'm a young Republican, you know? Um, and then of course I'm born, my brother is born and we're both like really into art. Um, but what I found is that we've like all of the career paths we've chosen, regardless of what they seem like on the outside, they all have to do with this sense of, uh, people management, like the sense of collaboration that has to do with like knowing people well enough to let them do what they're good at. And for me as a filmmaker, that's meant the world because rather than just trying to direct a specific story, I'm trying to let these moments happen. And I think if people can see that from the outside, um, I'm sort of like letting them believe what they want or like, so take that how you will. Here's a question. So um, I'm wondering, are there things that you can do, but maybe you shouldn't be doing like somebody else should be doing? Um, so it sort of made me think about that as, uh, my sort of editing process of the podcast, which is one of the reasons I don't edit my podcast anymore. Um, and I haven't for, for a long time because like, I like the process of editing. I actually enjoy it because I really get in, I'm a sort of an, an audiophile. I get like, I get totally nerded out on like changing sound frequencies. So some yeah, yeah, voice, their voice right? sounds just the way, you know, it's like, okay, I spent 10 hours editing that thing that nobody is like, even care about except for me. So yeah. is there someone else on your, your team or they can maybe bring in that can maybe do certain parts of this that, that um, maybe you are too close to. So you do need some of that, like to hand it off and sort of just like, just do, do it. And I'm going to be okay with it. 
You know, yes. you know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. So one of the things I, 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 I like, I like dropping names of people that I, that inspire me. It's like a very stupid film boy thing to do, but for me, it, it's, it's really how I like get by and what I, I, I went, I, I don't know. Oh God. So you don't get uh, I, by food and water. You, you get by by dropping names. I, yeah, I love like, you know, Michael Bay, uh, Steve Jobs. Yeah, I don't know. Oh God. Anyway, I was really into the 90s film movement. I'm from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and Steven Soderbergh went to my high school. And he was sort of, within the film kids in my area, he was sort of like the guiding light. He was like this guy who... So I know that name, but I don't know how... Like, yeah. Who so is... our, he, was, he was well known for Ocean's Eleven. Okay. He did that, and then he recently. What else is he? He did like uh, what was it? Some Magic Mike, which is funny because he made Magic Mike. But early on, he made movies like Traffic. He made Sex Lies and Videotape. Okay. Uh, yeah, and he. I mean, he made all of these really experimental, jazzy movies. Um, and there, he uh, with a number of other directors like Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez were very into this idea of postmodern filmmaking, which was taking a concept and then letting guest directors come in and do specific scenes. But what's interesting about that is when the movie's presented, it's not like there's this title card that says like this scene was directed by director X. It's like you tell them in the beginning this entire product was pieced together by these people with a few guest directors and that's it. And for me, I think my film is kind of like that where I'm letting other people come in and like chime in and I, I'm going out of my way to credit people. And it, it's funny because finding titles for people is very hard for me because they're oh, all, it's the worst. It is so like, <laughs> hard. Oh my. It, it's not like when I meet someone, I'm like, you're only going to type, uh, on the computer, you're only going to do that. And that's it. You know, it's like every person I bring on, if they say they want to do something, I'm like, let's do it. Why not? Let's yeah. Um, and I, yeah, I think to sort of like uh, tie the conversation together, that for me is my greatest sense of trust, at least as a storyteller. Um, so yeah. Anyway, do you want to end it there? Or is there anything else that you wanted to uh, add or any other questions um, you want to I could ahead? keep going. Let me see. I have a series of things I wanted to ask you. Oh, yes. One other thing I wanted to mention. Um, and this is, again, like a more of a personal question. Uh, I, I No, I do not finally... like mustard. <laughs> Damn it. Uh, uh, ketchup? No. It's Man, all right. I mean, if, it's not, if there's nothing else, but like barbecue <laughs> sauce is by far the ultimate condiment. Just mm. Okay. Pickles? No. Um, no, one of the things... <laughs> Please, no mayo. <laughs> All right. I, lesson learned. I'm going to include that in the documentary now. Um, one of the things you mentioned in your talk at Chad... I, it's funny because we've talked for so long without really mentioning much of Chad. Mm -hmm. Chad, for me, was like this very eye-opening experience to see so many people that I respected within five feet of each other. I really want to say, like, if you can go, go. Like, it's so important. Um I watched, um, I watched over the talk that you gave and one of the things you mentioned as someone in the community is that some people uh, have called you, what is it, the app guy. There's a point where you're like, I don't want to get pigeonholed as the app guy. Thanks, Ari. Ari Tuckman. It was like, I thought like, that made me laugh so hard. And like, it wanted, like what I want to get at is that. And then also, um, I don't know, being pigeonholed for one uh, approach to something at that time. Cause one of the things you also said within that was when you first started to make the show, 
you wanted to call it ADHD brain wired differently. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I remember you said it and like, I laughed so hysterically and the chat room, it, no one moved. <laughs> it was this moment where like you were laughing and I'm sitting here thinking like, oh my God, I am so happy he didn't call it that. And the point is you do not want to be pigeonholed for making a mistake or like doing that. And the fact that you happen to switch to ADHD rewired the entire world, I think subconsciously is grateful for it. But what I'm curious about is like, like there was a, yeah, there was a point where I was trying to figure out, do I call this like James, the ADHD tale, you know, like, uh, there's like, there's so many weird, like what I, I, what I, what I want to ask you is when you decide to chime in and talk on a public level in this community, how exactly do you sort of find the balance between having a voice and then being pigeonholed? And what has it taken for you? Because you're, what is so great is like you are so well-respected within this community and you've talked to so many different people about so many topics. And that for me is like a lot of effort, Eric. Like I, I've, I, like I spend all day doing this. And when I talk to you, I feel like a, like a freshman, you know, I feel like I'm like just getting started. So what I'm curious about is like, what does it take to not get pigeonholed? Well, so first or, of all, I mean, like, you, you were with me when the, before we actually hit record. Um, and so I often feel like a freshman too, when we're, when I'm, you know, getting ready to get started with this thing. Uh, you yeah, know, cause I haven't, yeah. I haven't recorded an episode in a few weeks, uh, cause I had a little mm-hmm. bit of a backlog. Um, and yeah. uh, so it's like, wait, what do I do again? Oh yeah. I have yeah. a, I have a whole list to go through that helps me remember this thing. You know, it's, so it's, yeah. it's, it's a process. Um, I think the idea of, of like being pigeonholed, like that's just, a, it's a creation of like your own limitation, like of what you think your limitation is, right? Like if I want to start doing something different, like I'm going to start doing something different and will I lose people? Like probably will I gain people? Probably like I, I I'm not there at, you know, at this point, and I don't imagine switching gears to anything. Um, but I often, I often have wondered, like, will there be a point in my life where I'm like, all right, I've, I've seen every angle of ADHD. I'm going to do something completely different now. Like, I, you know, I don't know if that will happen. Um, I don't think that I, I'm not going to rule that sort of notion out, you know, because I understand, like, you know, I can get bored with stuff over a period of time, but. I'm also thinking because I live with ADHD that it's, you know, every day is a new adventure. So, um, so I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think that when you base, you know, going back to sort of Brene Brown's work, when you base your self-worth off of other people's reactions about other people's approval, then you're going to feel stuck in that pigeonhole. But the pigeonhole is the, the, it's not locked, right? Right. It's like, it's, it's an open, it's an open door policy. You can come in and leave anytime you want to. Right. Right. And I, I, yeah, I, I think that's that for me, that's been um, a comfort in its own way, knowing that just because I develop an opinion doesn't mean that'll always be my opinion. And just because I say something doesn't mean that that'll always be the way I feel about something. And I think when, again, like for me, I, if there's one thing I did want to say about um, sort of communicating with the ADHD community as a whole, it's that we shouldn't pigeonhole anyone at any given point. Like there are points where we are allowed to speak out against ideas or concepts, but when it gets personal, I feel like we lose track of what we're doing. I think um, if, if, we're, if we're trying to be diplomatic about the science and the logic that we have, we need to stop trying to point out individual people and we need to look at the bigger picture. And I know that's easier said than done, but I think again, Brene Brown is a great example and is a like 
a TED Talk Wonder Kid for a reason. And, and, I and hope uh, Brene, if you're listening, um, I still want yeah. you to come on the podcast, please. If, if please. any of you are listening or watching who uh, know Brene, please like, can you, can you like, do me a favor and reach out to her for me and say, this Eric guy, he, he probably ta- he's your biggest fanboy um, and the ADHD community wants to hear from you. And uh, what better place to do it than on the podcast? All right, shameless promotion and, and attempt to get uh, Brene Brown on the podcast done okay um so james let's wrap this up because we are about out of time here um first of all thanks this is always fun this is you know with so many people that i talk to i feel that the conversation could go on and on and on um yeah i could yeah i could go on and on and on so (laughs) we we, want to keep listeners before they completely tune out um so uh thank you everyone who's uh, still here um you know it's i'm always uh you know give yourself a gold star every time you make it to the end of an episode um because you rock, and I appreciate you. We couldn't do this uh, podcast with, without you all. I guess we could technically do it, but uh, you know, knowing that actually, people are watching and listening um, makes a difference. Last thing, if you actually made it this far, um, if you email me uh, that you made it this far, I will put your name in the credits of my movie. Whoa. Uh, I, I never have done that, and I, I will be amazed if anyone actually reaches out. Uh, but email me at Castile, C-A-S-T-E-E-L dot James, J-A-M-E-S 88 at gmail.com. Again, if you That's made it this far, C-O-M. yeah, <laughs> C-0-0 is like you make a circle there. And yeah, anyway. We'll, we'll if post you, the link uh, in the show notes. Yeah, great. Cool. That's all I've got. James, thank you so much. Congratulations. And I, uh, I, I really look forward to, to seeing this documentary come to you fruition. Um, so thanks so much for sharing your story and for the work that you are doing. Great. Thank you so much, Eric. Uh, this has been amazing. Um, talk to you soon. This has been Eric Tivers, and I want to thank you for listening and congratulations for making it to the end. ADHD Rewired is more than just a podcast. We are a community focused on learning, growing, and connection. The website is ADHDrewired.com. You can find summaries and additional resources for each episode, learn more about the ADHD Rewired Coaching and Accountability Group, and more. It's all at ADHDrewired.com. Don't just be a passive listener. Be an active member of the community. Submit your request to join our free and growing community on Facebook. Watch for a message from me on Facebook because I screen everyone before they come in the group. Podcasts do change lives. You can make a difference in someone's life by spreading the word about this podcast. Share it online or share it with a friend. If you're a member of Chad or any other ADHD support group, let people know about this show. And if you really loved this episode, please hit share on your podcast player. One of the biggest things you can do to support this podcast and help other people discover it is to leave an honest rating and a review on iTunes or Stitcher. If you can't figure out how to do it, message me on Facebook or through my website and I'll be happy to walk you through it. Looking for more ways to listen and learn? Get a free audiobook and a 30-day free trial at Audible by using my affiliate link at audibletrial.com slash ADHD Rewired. Not sure where to start? Start with Brene Brown's The Gift of Imperfections or her six-hour recorded workshop, The Power of Vulnerability. This is Eric Tivers reminding you that when you spend time to plan, you will save time 
that you could spend later. Until next time. <laughs>